Our national conversation about conversations about race is sponsored by MailChimp. Guess how many businesses around the world use MailChimp? Seven million. To do what? Send email newsletters. Find out more at MailChimp.com. The following podcast contains explicit language. Yo, welcome to the B-Side for episode six of our national conversation about conversations about race. This is the Prophet Muhammad and Mixed Race Meritocracy episode, you may recall. I'm Baratunde Thurston here in Panoply's New York studios with my co-host Tanner Colby. Hello, sir. Hello. And Raquel Cepeda's back. What up, what up, what up? (laughs) Good to have you back. Nice to be here. Again. I missed you guys terribly. I know you missed me, Baratunde. I missed you I don't know about you, Tanner, because you didn't say my name once. I couldn't shut up about how much I I missed you, Um, So look, on our last episode, we talked about the backlash to the Everybody Draw Muhammad cartoon contest in Texas, mixed race beauty standards, especially in Japan with the hafu, and what happens when the myth of meritocracy meets the bamboo ceiling in terms of affirmative action. So, as promised, here is what some of you in our extended community of conversationalists had to say. We got a couple of emails from outside of the United States, uh, including one from Japan. So I wanted to share that. This is from Michael in Japan via email. Uh, I'm an American living in Japan. I've been living here for over seven years, and I was elated when you brought up the issue of mixed-race beauty queen Ariana Miyamoto. I enjoyed your conversation about the issue, but I wanted to point out that this conversation is not happening in Japanese media. Like most things controversial, Japanese media tend to shy away from anything that will rock the boat. I tried discussing the issue about Miss Miyamoto with my Japanese peers, but no one had even heard about the issue. While at the same time, most of my foreigner peers in Japan have been discussing and sharing articles regarding it. I do have to say that race is a big issue in Japan, but Japan doesn't want to talk about it. Thank you for a great podcast. And thank you. So anyone surprised by the silence? Not at all. I mean, me either. Yeah. I mean, it's it's good to know that there's someone actually worse than us at having the conversation. <laughs> yeah. We're like, we're like, we're Alabama, you we're know, and number two. Right. It's like <laughs> Mississippi will always be lower. So Alabama has that safety net. Um, but, you know, it's but it's true. Growing up in Alabama, it's, you know, one of the things that was fascinating about, you know, all the marches and the bombings in Birmingham back in 1963, that got far more coverage in Japan and in right. Tokyo. It was like front page news. And if you lived in the suburbs of Birmingham, you probably didn't hear about it because there was a local news blackout. So that's definitely, I think it probably goes both ways. You know what it is? People don't like to air out their own dirty laundry. Right. We always want to like point yeah. out, like, you see, we're not so bad. So that's why I think that we're not, you know, we're not, they're not discussing it in Japan. Which it was really surprising because I know so many people that are half Japanese yeah. and half um, um, black. So it's just weird. It, half other thing, you know. I think race. it does because we we talk about it more. I think we have much more of an open history of conflict around race than Japan has such an open history about it as well. When we did that show, I cited uh, a note from a friend of mine who grew up there, and the Japanese idea of their own racial purity and history is so deeply embedded and also kind of false. Um, like there is no pure Japanese-ness, but, you know, genetically speaking at least, but they cling to that. So I think any discussion that would challenge what Japanese-ness is would, would kind of challenge the overall identity of, of the state for, for people who live there. So 
I don't know that they would even know where to start. It's interesting though because a lot of people from Japan come here because yeah. of their love of hip hop culture, mm -hmm. and there are even I've even heard stories where friends of mine in the fashion industry have gone there in the streetwear industry, and they're like, people are paying money, like somebody said, like three hundred yen an hour, yeah. to get their hair texture uh, oh, yeah, you changed. Oh, you can black it up in Japan. You can black it up in yeah. Japan. So it's interesting to me. And then I see a lot of people moving here and and intermarrying. Yeah. So I feel like it's going to be more the norm in a few generations. But that still doesn't mean they and they'll will talk, talk about, about it. it. Yeah, they'll never reckon they, with Like, it. buying FUBU is one thing. Mm -hmm. Like, actually getting into the issue of authentic Japanness in your own nation is a whole... Like, that's a much more expensive act. But you know what? I wonder how that definition is going to change yeah. as the younger people that are, you know, here that are moving back and that are embracing not only hip-hop culture but American culture and multiculturalism are going to... If they're, you know, once they get older and they start becoming the ruling class, how is the conversation going to change? That, That's going to be very that interesting. will be interesting. Well, let's stick to our international sources here. We have Eyes on France from email. I'm surprised you all haven't yet brought up the fact that according to the U.S. Census categorizations of race, the category of white is defined as having origins in any of the original peoples of Europe, the Middle East, or North Africa. The fact that Arab Americans are considered white by the government, but in many cases not considered white by the general public, has interesting implications not only when thinking about what whiteness means and who can be accepted into it, but also in terms of not really being able to measure the representation of Arabs and Arab Americans in any of our public and semi-public institutions. You know, so interesting. That's a conversation that'll change dramatically depending on what generation of Arab you're talking to. Mm. Because like we all know hip hop culture spread all over the world yeah. and it's like the most resonant uh, cultural export. Because of that, I've been able to travel to a lot of these places. And I remember meeting with people in about 13 cities in Morocco okay. who identify as being of color and actually very culturally Latino. Culturally Latino you know, very Moroccans. Big, very, yeah, very mixed. Like there's, you know, it's a very, they have a very, they have a huge love affair okay. with, with, the Lat with Latino culture and hip hop culture and multiculturalism, whatever. Yeah. But when you talk to the older generation, they see, you know, they come to this country and being white is being white, mm -hmm. having money, having social capital, in, yeah. blending in, becoming something, becoming American. Yeah. Where you talk to people that are younger and they're like, no, man, we're black. We're, we, could, we consider ourselves black. Mm. So it depends on who you talk to and what generation they come from. But I do believe that in the future, more and more and more people, like for me, I'm not even sure if Kim Kardashian is, is, is white or black. That's a conversation we need to have because I, I don't even consider her like, when they're like, oh, she fetishizes, you know, black culture. I'm like, I, she's not people, black. I'll tell you that right now. She's Kim not. Kardashian I don't know. If she's black. not white. I don't know. If she's white. I mean, I know her mom is well, Scott, does, Scottish. There, there, there is a third option. I mean, she doesn't have to be either. Yeah. yeah, she doesn't have to be either. Right. But, you know, but people just throw her into this all the way white. Like, and I'm going to and I'm going to call I'm going to call you out on this right now. OK, Miss Non-Binary, like you're you you're always trying to bring us to this table of I not didn't say casting she things was, in black and white, but you limited her choices. To I black didn't limit her choices. You, you didn't said, let I don't me know finish. If she's black or white. I don't know. That's why we're not. I didn't say she is black or white. I didn't say she is both. Right. I said I don't know okay. because those. For me, it's been very challenging because the more North Africans and people of Middle Eastern, you know, descent that I meet, depending on the generation, depending if I'm yeah. having dinner with a family and their parents think differently from the kids, it's a really non-binary really complicated and interesting conversation to have. Okay. Right. You had well, all of this just goes to my point, which is that for, for centuries, white supremacy used the boxes to amass their power, right? They put everyone in a box except white people, and so white people got to have all the money. Now, 
you have this multicultural, uh, multiracial society that is depending on those same boxes for apportionment of, say, you know, affirmative action, yeah. college levels, and the whole system is going to break down because the boxes don't work for that. Oh, this is this is so good. I'm not going to add any more to this because I want to sh- share more of what you guys wrote or even spoke into us. Uh, a quick aside from the same person, Eyes on France. Uh, this is more of a shaking my head moment. I wanted to point out this form that all new federal government employees fill out upon their entrance to government employment. Uh, I don't have an issue with the agencies requesting race and ethnicity information, but the following line is definitely a mess. So there's a government form that has you declare race upon uh, working for the U.S. federal government. Quote, providing this information is voluntary and has no impact on your employment status. But in the instance of missing information, your employing agency will attempt to identify your race and ethnicity by visual observation. To which our committed community member says, so there are apparently people working in the U.S. government whose job it is to visually observe people's race? Black spotting. That happened here. (laughs) That's happened here, and that's also happened in the Dominican Republic. Yeah. Back in the day, um, like in the 70s, 60s, I remember my grandparents and other elders that I know in the neighborhood talking about being in the Dominican Republic and not thinking, you know, they had their passport, people are trying to move to the United States. They didn't, you know, identify or think about, am I black, white, this, that. But then when they were filling out those papers, the people in the offices would go, okay, and they would just basically ascribe a race to you. Right, And so it's very interesting. And then here I met a woman who said, you know, back in the 70s, because she doesn't really think about, like, race in that way, because she just sees herself as a woman of color, right? And she's like, yeah, I remember this, you know, black American lady was the census person. They would go and knock on your door and help you fill out everything out. And she just called me. She's like, well, you're not white and you're not black, so I don't know what to check. So she just checked both. So, you know, people visually kind of like... that's been happening for a long time. Yeah, and in Brazil, which I wish you guys would have gotten into a little bit more, it's really more complex than what Anand was saying Mm -hmm. about white people eating and black people serving. I mean, there's in the 70s, they gave them an opportunity to define themselves, and there were over 173 or maybe even more classifications. And you can be something different every single day when you're there, depending on what city you're in. So it's like a lot more fluid okay. than what was presented. And I just wish I would have heard a little bit more about the colorism in India. Yeah. Let me go to something that we have continued to come back to on the show, which is how to become white. Marlena from D.C., emailed us the following. My comment is regarding how some groups were once not considered white and have been accepted now. I recently listened to an NPR Radio Lab podcast that supplements your conversation well. Although I do recommend you listen to the show, I understand there's only so many hours in the day. The show gives an insider view as to how the Nazi prisoners of war were treated in the U.S. during World War II. At the POW camp examined, they were receiving better food than many Americans because of the ration system in place for the general public. They made friends in the community because more men were needed for farm work, and members of the community donated instruments so they could have a band. A Nazi band. That's my editorial exclamation point addition. Uh, And Hitler actually donated money to the camp so they could host an art exhibition. The paradox here is that concurrently, Japanese Americans were forced into internment camps that were poor conditions and, and without any cause, The person presenting the research spoke about the othering of groups because they looked different. Although the Nazis committed insidious acts, they were white and ended up being generally accepted by the community that housed the POW camp followed in this report. Since the Japanese Americans were not white, they were met with suspicion, taken out of their respective communities, and imprisoned. And she provides a link 
which we will also do on our show notes for uh, this B-side. So, white Nazis, still white. Yeah, well, we got all of our German othering out of the way in World War One. I. <laughs> I mean, during World War One, you saw the anti-German backlash right. in a similar, I mean, not exactly the same way as Japanese, but you saw a very, very vehement anti-German backlash during World War One that you didn't really see in World War Two, even though the Germans were the bad guys again. Yeah, and, and, and much more, more extreme bad guys. And right. this is only a couple of decades. Right. Meanwhile, black folk been in this country for 300, 400 years. Brown people have been around here and still can't get that check mark to say you're an American. And now let's, uh, let's hear from the people who pay for all this. My Own Business is one of the 7 million that uses MailChimp to send our email newsletters and deliver high fives to our communities. Now, the people behind this company... They admire projects that spread creative empathy in the world and something they like to call creative chaos on the web. MailChimp also goes above and beyond, distributing hats for cats and small dogs. Find out more at MailChimp.com. MailChimp. Send better email. All right, let's go to audio because I'm so excited, people, about the voice memo game we set up. If you have thoughts on an episode, record voice memo on your smartphone or book a full recording studio with engineers and like a soundboard and get that perfect, crisp version of yourself, mix that down and email it to us at showaboutrace at gmail.com. This is our very first voice response from Brett. Hi, this is Brett from sunny and dry Sacramento, California. I'm giving feedback regarding a segment you all had about mixed race and how some propose that a future generation of mixed-race Americans will one day end racism. Now, overall, I think your consensus was that this notion is kind of baloney, and I agree with you, but I think the emphasis on mixed-race offspring is actually the wrong way to look at it. What's far more powerful than having mixed-race babies is the fact that their parents would have had to been interracial couples in the first place. If more and more people are in mixed-race relationships, it's going to push those people to have conversations about race more often, and this will ultimately lead to the end of racism. It's very hard to be racist towards a group that you know intimately well and might have even partially assimilated into. I am a white gay man in my early 30s, and I've been with a black man for quite a few years. A lot of my friends are black, and I know more about black culture than most white people do because I've submerged myself in it. This perspective has changed the way I look at racism. I'm more aware of it. I speak up more against racism when I see it. And I feel like I have a better understanding of what so many black Americans deal with on a daily basis because I hear it from my partner. You know, I come from a family that raised me in a small town in Central California. And they live in these little white worlds where they don't mix. They get all their news from Fox. And they seem to think racism is over because, hey, we have a black president. And whenever I hear things like this, I actually can use my relationship as a sounding board to point out how they're wrong. And I'm not just some privileged white guy speculating, but instead I can use what I've learned from my partner to point out that racism is not dead in America. I think it's far more powerful to speak out about racism, especially with other white people, when you're in an interracial relationship. It's like being gay, right? I'm gay, and I often find homophobia in those who don't know any gay people, or at least they don't think they know any gay people. And these people will get to know me as regular straight Brett, and at some point I'll tell them I'm gay, and when that happens, everything changes, right? Because they know I'm a good person, and they know that I'm gay, so now any misconceptions they have about gay people doesn't jive anymore. 
you can only have that kind of revelation because my identity can be hidden and race doesn't have that luxury. So I think in general, you were all correct when you said that mixed race babies aren't going to be the end all of racism. But actually, I think making mixed race babies might actually do it. Thanks for listening. And I want to say that you guys have an amazing show. And thank you for all you're doing. You all have stunning voices. And it's a pleasure to listen to you every week. Please keep up the great work. We have wow, stunning Brett. voices, y'all. Voice yeah. Slow <laughs> clap for Brett. Yo. <clears throat> He what? has a stunning voice. He, he does very have a clear. stunning voice. And very clear communicator. Thank you. That was just Thank you that was that. our inaugural voice wow. feedback. I'm proud of all of our listeners who are becoming uh, co-hosts uh, in the process. So th- thanks again, Brett. And he's absolutely right about sort of like the social cross-pollinization. I've often argued, I haven't seen a study to this effect, but I think it's, it's probably true, that like the campaign for gay marriage in the 2004 election it was like a joke it was something being deployed to get people out to vote against it and now it's like not even an issue it's like 10 years that's lightning speed in terms of civil rights and that's because gay and lesbian people are evenly distributed throughout the population they're already part of your family if you're dick cheney you either come to terms with it or you don't more so like you said if you don't know someone it's easy to hate them but if someone's in your family you know i have gay cousins in my extended family it was very conservative very christian it's like okay, they've just come to accept it. And so the more you have people in your different families, the more you're interacting with them. It's not, he's right, it's not just about breeding our way to some mixed-race eugenic future, but the more we do break down barriers, the more we are put in, you know, have to face uncomfortable situations and, and learn to deal with them. I've been really thinking about my dominican Yorkiness, my my Dominican and American self and how happy I am. Like, yeah. these are the times when I'm, like, running through that little hyphen over to my American side and mm. just embracing it because I wasn't born and raised in the Dominican Republic. Because if I would have been, I would have at least half of me would have been part of the ruling class. So everybody knows what's happening right now in the Dominican Republic, right? You know, I always bring it back to the Dominican Republic and, and Hispaniola because that's where the new world began. That's where America, as all we know lead. it, all roads yeah. lead right back there. That's where slavery began, the indigenous slavery movement began. So then now you have this 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 horrible, horrible situation in the Dominican Republic where the ruling class, and I hate to have to always emphasize that, but we tend to like to clump everybody in together when in the seam, along the seam, they're living very peacefully together. And basically the ruling class is trying to deport everybody who's Haitian, but not only Haitian, who is Dominican Haitian, Dominicans of Haitian descent, and who are perceived to be Haitian. Mm. And that to me is really backwards, ass backwards, because... You know, I have cousins who look like you, family members who look like look like Tanner, look like Cody, look like AC. So it's like, how do you separate people? How do you perceive like you're more Haitian than this guy? So you leave your mom, say goodbye, and send him to the other side of the of of the island. That doesn't make any sense. So this is when where I'm happy to be American because here in America, a lot of Dominicans and Haitians are very close. We intermarry, we grow up together, and these things may not have been possible had we been living there. And I think that possibly these things will change when my generation starts to rule and starts to go over there and run for president and, and try to change all the policies. But I see what's happening over there. Like, okay, the lighter side of the island, the perceived lighter side of the island, right, is becoming socially white or wanting to become socially white, even though they're not... So you get what I'm trying to say. It's like we're mixed race people are trying to kind of 
prey on people that they perceive to be darker. That's it's embarrassing sad. too because as a Dominican, it's like you have to speak for everybody. You have to like, you know, we're not the ones. We're not the ones. Not everybody's that way, but the ruling class there yeah. is like the ruling class almost anywhere. Okay. Right. Self-loathing. That's why they call them the ruling class. <laughs> yeah, self-loathing and infected <laughs> yeah, by right. colonialism. Bam. Thank you for that uh, perspective, Raquel, especially since you weren't able to be with us on the last episode and uh, you have such a personal connection to it. It's extra dope. On this notion of mixed race dating, uh, we did address that that point. I think Anand was the one who drove home the point very clearly with his uh, Sally Hemings reference. Like, let us never believe that basically sexual relationships alone will somehow end racism. So I do, I respect Brett's experience and his belief that a level of intimacy breeds a level of understanding. I think what a lot of those authors were saying, and certainly what I was saying is, that that alone, that the production of mixed race children alone doesn't absolve us of the responsibility to still do real work. I guess he is talking about like his personal change. Right. I don't think that that's enough. Well, this happens at the point you're making something that happens every time. Respectability politics alone won't save us. Interracial marriage alone won't save us. Fighting in the courts alone won't save us. No, none of those things alone will save you. But the question is, does it play a role, and what role does it play? And but that, and, but that wasn't the question we were answering. Like we were also, we were answering a charge that like this is going to save America. Mixed and, racing is not going to save yeah, America. Yeah, and it's like look no, at the like, Dominican Republic so, and Haiti. <laughs> I mean, I think nuance is a given in most things, right? So it's like okay, nothing alone, extreme is bad. Like too much apple cider probably makes your urine real weird, you know. I don't know why I chose that example. I don't know I where you got I'm surprised you didn't choose asparagus. <laughs> yeah, I thought you were going to go with asparagus. Yeah. Clearly, it's time to move on to another comment, and uh, we're going to try to wrap this up. Uh, Paul sent an email in with some recommendations, and uh, I can't read the URLs. They're very long. But he says, I'm writing because my podcast stream has blown up this past week with discussions about mixed-race romance mostly the trials and travails of being a non-white person trying to navigate through the world of online dating. And he recommends the Startup Podcast, Season 2, Episode 6, the Reply All Podcast called The Fever, and Pop Rocket, which is over at Maximum Fun that Jesse Thorne and company run, Episode 21. We'll drop these links in the show notes, so check out uh, Episode 6B, show notes on showaboutrace.com to click through or make it hard for yourself and try to Google those words I just said way too fast. But thank you, Paul, for adding to the docket. Uh, The other big thing we talked about was this question that people get asked when they are mixed race. What are you? Who are you? Where are you from? And we got a couple of responses on that. Uh, Maryland, the Pacific Northwest, uh, talked about how she's white, grew up in Colorado, lived most of her life in Portland and Seattle, and has moved around a lot. In these two cities, especially Seattle, everyone is from somewhere else, whether it's Cleveland or China. What she's saying is everybody's from somewhere else, and asking someone where they grew up is a relatively common question. I understand that it can come across that too many people ask it in the way you were discussing on the show, with the ulterior motives and needing to prove your existence. It wouldn't feel good to me to be asked the question in that way. But I also understand that where are you from can be a very complicated question for people who don't feel like they completely belong any one place. I'm not defending anyone who's asking for someone to prove their existence. I'm not pretending to know how it feels to be asked that question so many times. But it does really suck that, you know, that people are made to feel defensive. I just struggle with the balance of getting to know someone and defending them. Because where you grew up is important. And how you ended up living where you do 
is also important. It's part of someone's story, but sometimes that story can be too personal to share with acquaintances. And on this subject, Raquel in particular, um, because you weren't here, did you want to add some flavor to the idea of the questions that mixed race people get asked that are both uh, innocent sometimes and also prying and, and offensive and annoying in others? Well, I think you both, you and, um, and Anand, made really good points. But you have to, at some point, you know, meet people where they're at. They're just trying. I mean, you can't scare people into not talking about race ever. It's a good icebreaker, but I understand also, like, what you were talking about with your sister. It gets annoying to always be asked, like, what are you, what are you, what are you, and have to justify and prove that you belong somewhere. After a while, you stop giving a shit. Um, so I understand both sides. But now as, you know, I'm growing and growing and, and, and evolving and changing and being informed by the world around me, I kind of try to use it as, a, as an icebreaker. Hmm. So you see it as an opportunity, now, not a yeah. challenge. I used Boom. to see it as a challenge yeah. and I used to get very defensive and very kind of, you know, admittedly kind of militant almost about mm. it. Because you always have to prove yourself that you belong, that you're part of the struggle, right? But now I find it more as something, you know, a point of departure to talk about a bigger discussion. What do you say, Tanner, when people ask, uh, where are you from? You know, I actually do have an answer to that question because if I say that I grew up in southern Louisiana and that my family has this Cajun background and that lived in New Orleans for several years, People want to have a conversation. Oh, New Orleans! I mine went to Mardi Gras. People want to have. A, <laughs> right. If you say that, everybody wants to talk about Mardi Gras, right? Everyone. Nobody talking, wants to talk about Katrina, right? But if you if I say that I'm from Alabama, nobody cares. So <laughs> if I want to start a conversation with you, like if you're, you know, I'll be, oh, I'm I'm from Louisiana. If I really just I'm trying to get out of a conversation with you, I'll say I'm from Alabama. I'm from I Alabama. actually I feel like I do that with my career. Like I have a, a oh, yeah. very well, I work multi, in advertising. I multi, do the same thing. <laughs> this multifaceted career. People like, what do you do? And I'm like, oh, here comes a comma separated list of values. Um, or I can just yeah. be like, I'm a writer. That's uh, it. Sometimes I say I'm a mom. Yeah. Or a wife. Yeah. Or I'm Stedman to my husband's Oprah. <laughs> it depends. But I usually cool. don't like, like because you know what? I don't I, I don't like I mean we do this a lot here in the States. Oh, I've noticed. Much. Yeah. We don't ever ask how are you? Like how are you doing? We ask what do you We're, do? What do you do? Or what do you do? Right. Or when we do ask how are you, we definitely don't mean it. Right. But like Here, we if you don't say good we don't even hear it. We just <laughs> right. are like, that's great. You're like, how are you? Pretty depressed actually. My father just passed away. Me too. Great. It's like, wait, what? You're, no, you don't sound depressed. You're not listening. So right. we don't yeah. actually want to know the truth. But yeah. here's here's what's interesting about being from the South and not having a Southern accent and sort of being named Frank Tanner Colby, which sounds like I came from, you Wait, know, your first name is Frank? Frank? My first name is Frank. Frank. Did you know that, Raquel? I did not know. Did I anybody, thought I knew everything about you. Producers, thumbs up or now? AC knew. AC knew. AC knew. How did Cody, you know? did you know? What did you think the F in my I never was saw for? the F. I thought that was freaking Tanner Colby. Well, yeah, it, but it could be. It yeah. could be friggin' Tanner. No, but like I have or this like wa- Fort Tanner or something. I, I have this was- friggin', friggin I have this Tanner waspy probably. name, and I don't have a southern accent. And little, I don't get it as much now because I've lived in New York for twenty, almost twenty years now. Yeah. But like when I just moved here from the south, people were like, you know how you always get the oh you're the whitest black person mm-hmm. I know, or you're not really black or whatever. I go, well you're not a real southerner. Right. You're a fake southerner, and all, and I have no investment in being a southerner. I don't really care. But like. That's my tribe, as yeah, it were. Yeah. And they're saying, well, I have this preconception about that tribe, and you don't meet those preconceptions, so I'm going to say you're not a real version of that. And because I'm white, it's merely annoying as opposed to oppressive, you know? <laughs> the difference between annoyance that and oppression. So That's yeah. Great. yeah. So, but it, but it's, it's the same dynamic, absent the oppression, right? And is there any difference between Southerners who call you out as not being Southern versus non-Southerners? No, I mean, not really. 
So we got one more comment. Uh, this is an email from Megan. Uh, first of all, she had a recommendation of a book called Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson about criminal justice, etc. Again, we'll throw the link up later. Uh, Megan writes, as a white teenager, I was nervous whenever my friends and I saw a cop car. It wasn't because I was afraid for myself so much as I was afraid of what would happen to my brown friends. In a society where this is becoming more common, do you have thoughts on how to channel this fear into positive action? The outrage that I feel about police brutality and systemic racism is hard to channel without understanding what those who are being oppressed feel about it. I'm listening to your show and utilizing other sources to figure out the best way to improve our society rather than just assuming I know what's best. At this point, though, I mostly feel disillusioned about my abilities as a single citizen. I look forward to learning more about all your thoughts on these issues of race and more. Again, that was Megan from email and uh, a teaser, Megan, uh, episode seven. We'll be talking about the language and the issues and the challenges of what it means to be an ally in racial and social justice. So so stay tuned uh, to iTunes, wherever you download this from. But for right now, any immediate thoughts from Megan about uh, how she can channel, as she said, fear uh, into positive action? As far as dealing with the police is concerned, I'm not sure that, uh, you know. I'm too busy thinking about how to channel my own fear <laughs> from my children and my family right. to think about how white people should do it. I mean, we don't even interact with the police, white people. Well, I, I and I think to maybe take it a little less literally. I mean, actually, in, in a case like hers, there might be a police oversight board or just paying more attention to the, the accountability system set up in your own political structure. Like, run for mayor, Megan. So that's one thing you do. You can run for mayor um, or police commissioner in the sense of a citizen oversight board, not like head of the cops. Um, and then there may be some local groups you can get involved in to just expend that energy more productively. I certainly can sympathize with the depression that comes from like an exposure to injustice and the feeling of being paralyzed and depressed is not a fun one. So uh, in addition to consuming great media like us and joining it, as you just did, um, I think in terms of positive action, look very locally in your world and we'll get more into it in the next episode when we talk about what it means to be an ally, which it sounds like, even though you didn't use that word, that's the kind of general tone of which you've asked us. We also ask our listeners, um, what do you do? You know, how do you turn your own fear, depression, paralysis around injustice, especially dealing with race, obviously the subject of this show, into a more positive action? Send us an email, showaboutrace at gmail.com. Post to the Facebook wall if you don't mind being public with your thoughts, facebook.com slash showaboutrace. There is a suge- another suggestion on this topic that you um, can do, uh, and that's listen in a group. A lot of folks are using this podcast as uh, jumping off into their own kind of book clubs, like a podcast club. It's an about race club where they talk about race with their friends. So we are uh, helping you hopefully nerd out uh, about race with your crew. So Megan and the others, at a minimum, don't, don't listen to this podcast alone. Uh, listen to the committee, make it a party, order, have some great food, you know, put on some good music in the background, dance in between the stories that we talk about, uh, and make it more social. Talking to us is one thing, talking to your friends, probably a lot more interesting for you. And uh, as a reminder, we're accepting audio feedback, so record with your voice memo application and slip that right over the internet server system to us. Real, real smooth life. We love you. <laughs>